Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network, which can be found at americansongwriter.com. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with us on social media by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com. Our guest on this episode of Songcraft is Dan Nigro who has already taken 2021 by storm as the co-writer and producer of Olivia Rodrigo's global smash hit, Driver's License. He'll join us in a few moments to talk about his development as a writer, his success with Freya Writings and Conan Gray, and how he's experiencing this moment as pop music's new songwriting superstar. Part one. Well, Scott, as we present our listeners with the appetizer, <laughs> to our upcoming conversation with Dan Nigro. Oh, I like that. That sounds better than the Beavis and Butthead portion of the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, no, this is the appetizer. Ah, yeah. Um, and it's one that you can always afford. You don't ever have to check. <laughs> you, you can always afford these appetizers. They're free. Um, you know, it, I was thinking about the song Driver's License, mm -hmm. uh, and this conversation, you know, spends a lot of time on that song because it's been just such a juggernaut. Yep, as, um, as the kids say. The kids say juggernaut these days. Um <laughs> You know, that's a song that really is so much about young love. Right. Uh, everything about it, um, you know, the title, you know, the whole thing being about that time period of your life when you're getting your driver's license. Uh, right. The artist is a teenager herself. And it really just sort of centers on what th that crazy young love when you, all of your mind and heart and hormones are just, you know, out of whack. Firing in all directions. <laughs> totally. Right. Um, and, and, you know, pop music is really, and it has for some time now, embraced th this, you know, just the idea of youth, right? Mm -hmm. And just celebrating youth, diving all the way into what it means to be young. And then I sort of look back at, at our era of being kids, listening to pop music in the 80s, mm -hmm. and I look at the artists and I'm like, were those guys young? Because <laughs> I, I look at like Phil Collins in the mid 80s and I'm like, yeah. that wasn't a young dude. No, he had that weird like stripe of hair when he probably <laughs> yeah, should have totally. shaved his head. Yeah. Yeah. I look at like Billy Ocean. I look at Daryl Hall. And basically, any time that you want to look up, like, and do a Google image search of you know a, a, a pop singer, particularly a male pop singer in the '80s, right? Hundred percent chance you can find a photo with a sport coat. And I'm not talking <laughs> about like at the Grammys. I'm talking about like in the video, right, right, right. If not a full-on suit, if you're yeah. Robert Palmer, right. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Well, you know, in the late 80s, you had sort of the Tiffany, Debbie Gibson, you know, that whole thing kind of yeah. happened. But before that, there was a lot of like there was there was, it felt like a lot of adults. Yeah. You know? So I, I don't know. I mean, has pop music always been a celebration of youth or was it kind of a celebration of middle age? In, in the 80s, <laughs> right. because it, it, the songs were so mature, too. Right. You know, everybody had loved and lost a thousand times. Well, you had, uh, you had like, bubblegum pop and, and stuff in the 60s, and you had, like, the Leif Garrett stuff in the in the 70s. Yeah. But, yeah, there's something in the 80s. I mean, sure, you had Prince and Madonna, who seemed kind of outlandish and, like, you know, raised eyebrows among our parents. But, you know, at the same time, we also thought that Kenny Loggins and Lionel Richie were cool. And these guys were like wearing sweaters and they were like, look like people that might've been friends with our dads. Yeah. Also, know? I mean, they were experiencing career resurgences at the time. They, right. they weren't like new artists. They, they really were people that had been around the block. Yeah. I mean, Huey Lewis did not necessarily come across as like a, a doe eyed teen. Right. 
<laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, it was like, okay, you know, what, what who do the kids relate to? Probably a good, uh, a good Bruce Hornsby. <laughs> You know, (laughs) (laughs) exactly. Um, And which I I probably makes sense as to why every Easter I was like, yeah, of course I want to wear a suit. Right. Exactly. Oh, yeah. I I remember the addicted to love video. I'm wearing a suit, man. (laughs) I remember watching the uh, Mr. Mr. Broken Wings video and asking my mom to take me to the store right then so that I could get a blazer. (laughs) I I specifically remember that. And, And even guys like. I mean, you had guys like Michael McDonald, right? And, yep. and you know, and Dire Straits. I mean, they were big. Those guys seemed like... Also all enjoying career resurgences, by the way. Yeah, they all seemed like pretty middle-aged at the time. Chicago is another example, because yep. they had been big in the 70s, kind of reinvented themselves. And But even you had guys like Richard Marks, who actually were younger, but total tie wearer, you know? <laughs> right. And, and he was huge. I mean, he had like, you know, a ton of pop hits in, in the, in the late eighties, but like absolutely an adult, yeah. you know? I, I, well, the eighties were the era of the suit. I mean, LA law, I mean, everything seemed to be pointing toward you, you need a suit. If, <laughs> right. If you're going to function in this society, but even all the way back to the sixties, you had Michael Jackson, who was a kid, a child artist. Right. But the whole thing was like, Oh, look how grown up he seems. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like we, we love Michael Jackson, but it is not because of his youth. It's because yeah. of how much he seems like a little man. And I think it's possible that, that now pop music is an actual celebration of youth more so than it ever has been. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think like, what if like Anita Baker came on the scene today? Right. You know, like Anita Baker kind of gave off like, you know, I'm a paralegal kind of vibe, <laughs> not like I'm a big pop star. Right. You know, and uh, and before the switch, I mean, I think before kind of everything went to that sort of you know, new kids on the block, Tiffany, Debbie Gibson thing. Um, it, it's I remember watching MTV, but I also remember not thinking that like VH1 was less cool, which is VH1 was like the channel that my parents would tolerate. Right. But like they kind of liked the music, too. And, right. you know, like it. it it just seemed like, yeah, pop music is is adult music. I think one of the things that's changed is like even, and I think you're right to point out the um, the Tiffany Debbie Gibson sort of mall pop era as as a shift, and even New Kids on the Block were part of that, right? Yeah, these were still kids that were put together by adults, hmm. singing songs written by adults, right? That were sort of crafted to appeal to kids, and they did a fantastic job of it. Those yeah. songs were. were absolutely bullseye what they should have been yeah but now you've got you know and i think taylor swift led the way in in a lot of senses where you've got a kid that was 15 that was writing these songs that's true and and now you know there are teenage artists that are a part of writing their own songs expressing their own experience at the time and it comes across really authentic in a way that that feels timeless and even me as now like a I'm decidedly adult. You are a dad. I'm such a dad. Um, <laughs> but I listen to Driver's License, and and I go, I get it. Yeah, you know, it sort of takes me back, and it, it touches on something. Yeah, nothing about it seems silly. And you would think that, like, I why would I relate to a song written by a teenage girl? But it's something like where she taps into the universality of the teen experience, and we can all remember being teenagers. We can all remember how intense, you know, those feelings felt. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just think like in the, in the eighties, like, you know, Huey Lewis, it didn't matter how you felt, you know, it mattered like, you know, you're taking what they're giving cause you're working for a living. And like, you know, it's not about like how you feel. It's about how do you play that harmonica and, right. and sing in that gravelly. I mean, Bruce Willis put out an album. 
Right. Because he played harmonica. Um, <laughs> and like it turned to that, Bruno, right? That, exactly. That's what fascinates me is that sort of like the harmonica was the tool of like the cool pop guy, yeah. you know, and he might even loosen his tie a little when he plays it to let you know he's getting down. Well, but, but this guy was coming back from a hard week at work. Yeah, exactly. He, he wasn't he wasn't coming off from a hard day at school. No, no, <laughs> no, not at all. He had uh, he had taken all he could from the boss man that week. Yeah. And he just needed to let off some steam. You know, I and I think the reason that that a song like Driver's License connects is because it comes from an authentic place. And I think right. if I sat down and I'm like, I'm going to write a song about what it feels like to be in love and be 16. Uh, I have a hard time with that. You know, I'd, right. there are other parts of the love spectrum that I'm going to be able to hit. Right. Um, but I remember uh, Al Kasha, you know, my friend and mentor um, who we just lost this past year, but um, he always used to say when we were writing love lyrics, I would say, is this too extreme? And he would say, no, love is psychotic. <laughs> and he always he always would say that. And, and uh, I think it's true. And especially when you're talking about that early love, your first heartbreak, your first heartbreak is psychotic. Hmm. It is a it drives you absolutely crazy. Yeah. Um, and I think when you're, you know, Daryl Hall in the mid eighties and you're writing about love, maybe it's not quite as psychotic as it was when you were 16. <laughs> right, right. Divorce is psychotic right. at that point. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but, but love is a little more structured for you. I think at 35. Yeah. Refinancing your mortgage is psychotic. Yes, and, exactly. Let's write about that. Raising children is psychotic. <laughs> I'm, I'm just glad that when we were 10, that we were able to idolize people who really gave us some insight into what it was like to be in your 40s. And <laughs> now that we're in our 40s, we can really get some insight from pop music into what it's like to be a teenager. Wow. Yeah. Looking and, forward and looking back. And guess what I never want to do again? What's that? Wear a suit. Ah, or be a teenager. Part two. Songwriter and producer Dan Nigro is having a major moment. Olivia Rodrigo's debut single, Driver's License, which he co-wrote and produced, made her the youngest artist in history to debut at the top of the Billboard pop chart. A global sensation, the song not only stayed on top of the U.S. chart for two full months, but reached number one in the U.K., Japan, and more than 20 other countries. It set a new streaming record on Spotify with over 15 million plays in a single day. Prior to his years-long overnight success, Dan began his musical life as the leader of indie rock band Tall as Lions before transitioning to songwriting and producing. His resume includes Cameo Lover by Kimbra, Mercy by Louis Capaldi, Castles by Freya Writings, So Hot You're Hurting My Feelings by Caroline Polachek, and Heather by Conan Gray. In addition to those songs, which have nearly 300 million combined views on YouTube, Dan has written and or produced for Sky Ferreira, Kylie Minogue, Billy Idol, Little Boots, Carly Rae Jepsen, Zella Day, Phineas, and many others. His latest single, Olivia Rodrigo's Deja Vu, was released less than two weeks prior to this episode and is already a top 10 pop hit, indicating that the team of Rodrigo and Nigro is here to stay. Dan, welcome to Songcraft. Hello. It's great to speak with you. Um, I don't know that we have ever uh, had a songwriter on this show who is having a moment in the way that you are having a moment. Um, driver's <laughs> license has obviously become a sensation. I know the... Uh, 
you know, I, I kind of feel like the Grammy song of the year at next year's Grammy Awards is maybe already in the bag. Maybe they should just go ahead and announce it this year. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's it's obviously uh, very exciting. And so we want to just start out talking about that song and, and then we'll we'll delve into more of your background and, and some of the other cool stuff. But um, talk a little bit about um, Olivia Rodrigo and how you guys connected and started working together um, and, and collaborating on what has now become the definitive song of the year only two months into the year. Uh, yeah, uh, it's kind of a like a fun little story. Uh, a friend of mine uh, had said that you know, I guess I, I, sh- I guess I should preface it by saying that um, I work with this artist named Conan Gray, who's incredible, and I've kind of helped uh, you know him since the beginning of his career. And when so so because of him, because of my work with Conan, I've gotten hit up a lot. You know, you know whether it's like friends in the music industry or just like random people. Uh, all the time are kind of, you know, reaching out and saying, hey, like, there's a new artist, like, you should check them out, you should check this out. And it's kind of, it's kind of a constant thing, just like, and in, in, ever since Conan and I started working together. Right. And so a, a friend of mine had reached out and said, hey, like, I, you know, I saw this artist, Olivia, and I thought that you might like it, you know, and I checked it out. And I was just completely blown away. Um, and I actually reached out to her and just asked her if she would like to meet up and maybe try to write or produce or whatever, you know? Hmm. Um, and I did that. And within like a couple of weeks, uh, I think she was actually in, um, in Salt Lake filming her show. And I think within a couple of weeks we had, when she was back, we met up and, and kind of just like had an initial, like just a meeting, um, and, and kind of just got to know each other a little bit. And then the pandemic hit. And so we actually didn't get to like after that initial meeting, we like didn't t- talk for a few months. Yeah. And once we figured out a safe way to kind of work, um, we we started to meet up like later on in the summer and just started to make music together. Wow. Um, and that's kind of how that was the initial like part of our, you know, kind of just meeting each other and working. Yeah. You know, songs like this, um, it, whether autobiographical or not, they, they cover a lot of emotional ground. There's like a real vulnerability um, to a lyric like this. And I'm, I'm curious about um, sort of the, the relational process it takes to sort of get to that point in a session when you can sort of throw those kind of lines back and forth, the kind of bleeding heart, you know, just opening opening your life in, in a song kind of thing. It's it doesn't seem like the kind of thing you can just do immediately after one Zoom meeting. <laughs> no, well, no, yeah, it's not that. You can't do that. It's, that's almost impossible. I feel like that's, I mean, this song was written like a few months after we we had met. And at that point, we had had a relationship already where we had been working on other songs and we had, you know, felt comfortable with each other. So I think that it actually does, for me at least, it, it takes a while for people to kind of start to feel really comfortable, whether it's like weeks or months of like being with somebody yeah. in a room and, and uh, yeah. And that's actually one of the reasons why I like to work most of the t- majority of my time, like one-on-one with artists. Cause I feel like the more there's other people in the room, like there's like people can, it's, it's easier for an artist to close off, you know? Sure. So yeah. So there's definitely like that kind of stuff is built up over time. The, the openness and, and with this song, I feel like, you know, as well as other songs of Olivia, where she she actually brings me like the initial idea. So it's like it's not a song that we like wrote together in the room. It's a song that she brought in and then I kind of help her like, you know, 
map it out and add things and then fig- if like some parts are not as good as others we I, I help her like make certain parts better you know mm-hmm. and that's kind of what i what i've learned over the years of of like you know my song craft is actually the fact that like that's actually what i'm best at mm-hmm. you know yeah like i'm not the person that comes into a writing room with the concept um and the idea of the song but i'm the person that you would bring a song to and i will help you finish it yeah yeah you know, I've 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 talked about this before on the show, but I remember in in college I used to listen to this song by Matthew Sweet uh, called "You Don't Love Me," and it was like this you know super kind of dramatic "Woe Is Me." It was like the perfect soundtrack to any time you know I was having romance troubles. It was like that was the the go to song, and so every it, day, yeah. So so every day, <laughs> so but it resonated with me. Um, because it was this perfect marriage of lyrics and and music, and there's something about driver's license that takes me back to that kind of teenage, like, oh my gosh, the world is is ending, you know, in the midst of this, um, you know, romantic problem. And but there's something about that marriage. What what it was about that song that appealed to me was that the music so perfectly kind of captured the the lyrics and I feel like that's something you guys have done really well here where if you just read these words on a page um, I don't know if it would translate the same way that it does in the context of this kind of sonic palette and the way that it starts sparse and then it builds so big in the bridge it's like it it takes you on an emotional journey with the music and you're probably with that blonde girl who always made me doubt she's so much Everything I'm insecure about Yet today I drove through the suburbs Cause how could I ever love someone else And I know we weren't perfect But I've never felt this way for no one And I just can't imagine how you could be And I'm curious, you know, what that process is like for you and just being able to to instinctively know where to drive a certain lyrical concept. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 an interesting thing because for me, like it's, you know, I feel like I read an interview, like not an interview. I read an art It's like a it's a book like songwriters on songwriting. Uh, Paul Simon did this really interesting piece where he said that um i think he said like at one point like and this is my interpretation of it granted it's been like 12 years since i've read the book but um that at one point in our history like lyrics were like at the forefront of of songs you know and like the songs that were popular on the radio or popular with people were songs that you know were very lyrically driven and then somewhere in the 80 the late 70s and 80s like songs that were like much more rhythmically driven or like quote unquote like vibe driven you know those became the songs that people wanted to hear and it was more about like the feeling of the song rather than the lyric you know Hmm. yeah and i think that that like kind of moved into the 90s when you have like a band like radiohead or like for me it was like i was obsessed with radiohead or coldplay and bjork and like these artists that like 
I, the lyrics were important. I mean, like when you read Radiohead lyrics, they're very important. But it, to me, it was about like the actual like the vibe of the music that made me, you know, grav gravitate towards it. Yeah. And I feel like in the like in the in where we are now, like we have come back to lyrics. You mm -hmm. know, like yeah. culture has come back to like the lyrics are at the forefront of a song. Um, but I think because I come from such a world of like you know like the music is really important that like when I'm hearing a song like the chords or someone's playing me a song I should say like you know uh, I'm always just like getting obsessed about like what the chords are and like what chords could be changing under the words to make them make more sense and like what the production is under it that's going to make that word hit harder mm. and like because I come from that world of where the, the lyrics actually weren't so important at a time hmm. um, that like those things are like those are like the things that I obsess about all the time. You know, it, that's super interesting. It's it, you talk about Radiohead. There are times when I've actually read Radiohead lyrics and been bummed because of, I liked what I thought it said, um, <laughs> better than what it actually said, um, or I get a little too freaked out. I'm like, oh wow. Um, but you know, o over the time that you've been a writer, I mean, this is obviously not an, even close to your first song or your first kind of important song. You you know, you've seen a lot of changes. It, like in those type of terms that, that you're telling us, but also just in the metrics of the way a song is consumed, um, where sales and and radio were kind of the only drivers at one point, and then you kind of move into a world where it's more about placements, and then it's also about now this playlist thing and, the, and access versus ownership and all that kind of stuff. In, in a streaming world uh, where people are kind of able to sort of dictate their own listening habits more than they ever were before, do you feel like that's changed the type of song that you're writing as well? I mean, is this, is Driver's License a song of the streaming era in terms of the way it's constructed? I don't think so at all, actually. Um, I've I feel like for me, I think because I'm a little, I'm 38, I'm you know a little bit older. Um, I feel like in the you know in the the pop songwriting world, you would say, I don't try to like uh, you know, what you what would, what's the word? I don't try to like uh adhere to those rules at yeah. all and yeah. i actually always like find it I, it's something that i always push with my songwriters that I, like the artists that i work with is to like not think about those things because ultimately i do feel like a great song is always going to win yeah um and i definitely feel that with driver's license that like the song's four minutes long it's like you know by typical standards like you know you see people on oh well the intro should be this long and the this should be that long and like the bridge can only be a certain length and i don't you know that's not something like we thought about like trying to like make it shorter, at least not something that I was trying to do. Right. You know? Yeah. It's yeah. funny. Cause I, and I'll reference this Conan Gray song, Heather, that was really, really popular last year. Like, you know, people all the, that song was never supposed to be a single. It was always one of my favorite songs on the record, but it was never a song that the record label, like really like put their, poked their heads out and was like, Oh, this is a song we're going to push. And because of it, they let us have the intro be 25 seconds long. Like no one, no one was bothered by the 25 second long intro. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know. I, I think that's part of one of the most important parts of the song is the fact that like it sets up a mood for so long. Yeah. yeah. Talking about like a Radiohead song or, you know, like a Bjork song. It's like, you, I, I always find it funny. Like, like, especially when I'm trying, because <laughs> I've gotten used to shorter intros, and it's always funny when I'm like, I'm referencing a song to an artist and being like, oh, we could make it sound like this, or like, this should be our reference, and I'll p put it on Spotify, and I'll like start listening, like, man, this intro is really long, like, <laughs> like, and not even that I don't enjoy listening to it, but I'm just like, I'm sitting there trying to like, 
show prove a point or show an idea and i'm just going like <laughs> right like twiddling my thumbs like the song will come at some point <laughs> right 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 yeah, t- try playing them like tiny dancer or something and it's like four verses before the chorus <laughs> i mean even with driver's license i don't think that i don't actually even look at the song having a typical structure in terms of a verse and a chorus right you know it really does it's a verse and then it hits it's like a i i call it like a turnaround or like a pre-chorus and then like a tag you know but like the chorus isn't really like a traditional chorus to me. It feels like a, it's a buildup you yeah. know, to something. I've often wondered if kind of the streaming era has, has freed us, actually, from some of the constraints of radio. I love... There's certain songs that are out now that I'm just like, they're doing really well, and it just makes me so happy because they're not songs that were meant for the radio, and that right. you could tell that they're the most consumed songs, and it's so wonderful to see, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The day the driver's license came out, Sizz's Good Days was like I think the number two song or something, and I was like, that song's incredible, and it just kind of is this like, you know, uh, like meandering vibe that's just so beautiful. I I say meandering, but it's not not negatively. I just think it's so wonderful. It just like doesn't really go anywhere, yeah. you know? Yeah, because like yeah. you're like sitting in this like soup, and like, and that was the most popular song that week, and I was like, this is great. Like, what this is music right now, and it feels. It's great to see, like, you could see in real time, like, no, this is what people want to be listening to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned um, Heather, and, you know, that's a song that is pretty sparse, and it's it's acoustic guitar-driven, and I hear a little, you know, Beatles influence in the, in the melody of that song. Only if you knew how much I liked you But I watch your eyes as she walks by what is I for sore eyes brighter than the blue sky? She's got you mesmerized while I die. Why would you ever kiss me? I'm not even half as on the surface, I, I see a, a song like Heather as being very different from a song like Driver's License in the production style. But the more mm-hmm. I listen to them, there is a similarity in kind of the use of space, you know, that that both songs are emotionally uh, impactful, but they're not cluttered. Um, and and most of your most of the songs that you've produced um you know they're they're not cluttered they 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 breathe um and i'd love to get your thoughts on coming to it as a songwriter who is also a producer what are you kind of trying to achieve in your approach to production to best highlight a song I think the thing that I'm always trying to achieve is just to make sure that like I'm not doing any sort of disservice to the song, which sounds like kind of cliche and like obvious, but it it is easy for a producer to like overproduce a song. And I'm definitely guilty of it a lot, but I think because I'm a songwriter, I listen to the song as a songwriter and not as a producer. I just happen to know how to produce music so that it, it enables me to like, I always have the vocal like really up in the forefront. I'm always like, no, the vocal is really important. Whereas I feel like some people are always like burying a vocal and I'm like, no, no, no. I want you to like, I want you to hear it like so clearly. I want the lyrics to be in your face. And I feel like I'm constantly trying to make sure that I'm not getting like that. There's nothing in the production that's making you like, that's taking you away from listening to the song. 
Yeah. You know? Yeah. And still trying to keep it. In, I mean, I, I try to keep it interesting, but it's not to me. It's not really about like how fancy you could get with the production. And I constantly like have that insecurity when I'm producing a song and hearing other producers songs that I'm like, wow, that production's so incredible. It's so cool. That thing that they did there or there. And I'm a lot of times going like, oh, but I don't want to like make the song sound like it's tricked out or something. Mm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Well, you know, you mentioned Radiohead as an influence, and then you know, we're sort of pointing out the things that we think we kind of hear in the songs, whether it's Beatles or whatever. But I'd, I'd love to hear all the way back to, you know, kind of growing up, um, what you were hearing that first started to to catch your ear from a musical standpoint. For me, like, when I grew up, the thing that was, I was, I guess, in like, I want to say 91, 92, so I was like, nine, 10, 11 years old. That's like when Nirvana was at the peak. Yeah. And, and my favorite, like the first, my first favorite band, I'll say my first favorite band was Nirvana. Mm-hmm. And I was just obsessed with Kurt Cobain and like his writing style, which led me into listening to like, I got into Pearl Jam and Soundgarden um, <clears throat> and just kind of like the whole wave of like the radio grunge bands, you know? Yeah. Cause, cause at, the, at that time, like that's what I listened to. I listened to like 92 point, three K rock, I think on in New York. And, and like, that's what I, that's what I was into. Um, so that was like, kind of like my start in music. And that's also when I started playing guitar and when I started writing songs was all kind of around the same time around, like probably like fifth or sixth grade for me. Hmm. And it was just like, you know, in a band, just like trying to do like, uh, Nirvana covers and that like stemmed into like more like the other alt like Our Lady Peace like when it started to get like the the radio rock was hitting for a while you know yeah um so yeah that's like kind of where I started and that's where I got like my initial like influence of like trying to like play and write music it's interesting because that I mean you, you look at those influences in particular and you say well that really sets you up for a future of writing songs that are pouring out emotions that are uncompromising in terms of their creativity and not wanting to bend to some sort of like, you know, radio standards. I mean, I think Kurt Cobain certainly set that kind of example as a creator. Right, right. Yeah, it was always like the having that like, like, I'm like, F the rules, you know, we're just going to go for what right. we want to go for, which also I think hurt me when I was actually trying to do my own artist career because I had like had this like, this like unnecessary chip on my shoulder of like, <laughs> I'm going to show everybody like that you don't need to like listen to anybody, you know? <laughs> right. right. I still like laugh at myself. He's like, why was I so angry? What, what, <laughs> I nothing to be angry about. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you really started your professional music career with your rock band, As Tall As Lions. And um, I know you guys released three albums that, that I'm aware of. I think your your second album, the self-titled one, is is probably the one that got the most attention with, you know, songs like uh, Maybe I'm Just Tired, uh, Ghost of York, Love, Love, Love. And then in parentheses, two more loves. Um, <laughs> Very but, important. Uh, yeah, there's... Um, <laughs> You know, there's a, 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 a certain, you know, rock uh, aesthetic, but there's also a distinct pop aesthetic to, to those songs.
you know, I'd love to kind of hear about your evolution as a writer from kind of coming out of that place of, of grunge and then beginning to incorporate more kind of those pop elements into what was, you know, guitar music still pretty much. Yeah, I mean, I think they come from like, like I said, like a Coldplay world. I feel like as I got into college, I got like obsessed with like songwriter. Like that's when I actually started to get into like, quote unquote songwriters. I I got I I have like a you know a vinyl of Neil Young's After the Gold Rush is like up in the studio, and that's kind of like that was one of the like I remember freshman year of college, like the a moment of transition of like oh like. I like, you know, 70s acoustic music. Not right. like, I liked folk music and I was listening to like After the Gold Rush, Joni Mitchell Blue, and I got into like Free Wheel and Bob Dylan. There was like a bunch of records like from a similar time frame that right. were like based around an acoustic guitar. And I think that was like my pivot into like quote unquote like more of a songwriting world. And then that stemmed I think just, you know, naturally into like other I mean, I think Coldplay was like my big influence in college and also Jeff Buckley, like people were doing like a little bit cleaner of a sound, you know, Mm -hmm. still being very emotional. I feel like I went through like a massive like grace period where I only listened to Grace by Jeff Buckley for like nine months, listen to like Hallelujah in the car and just try to like sing along with the long note at the end for like, see if I can like catch my breath and, (laughs) and do it, you know, like, I don't know. So that's where I guess that's where like the transition went from grunge to there. But I was always I was always obsessed with pop music, like even growing up, like I actually had a conversation with a friend about this recently about how like it was so weird in like high school because like growing up on Long Island, like there was such a big emo and hardcore scene. um, And and so As Tall As Lines was even like lumped in with all those emo bands, but we never were an emo band. And ultimately, like I was listening more to like stuff that was on the radio and even like diving into like I was obsessed with like, you know, Mariah Carey like always be my baby was like one of my favorite songs and I was just like obsessed with the songwriting on it and then like Hmm. Sarah McLaughlin's surfacing was like just in terms of like that was one of the first times I got into production just like listening to like these songs that were so simple and everything was on the piano but there was like all these like these weird like soundscapes happening in the background and that was like I remember like getting stoned in my car and just like listening to that record like like on repeat because I was just like wait like these songs are so simple there's nothing happening but actually there's like a million things happening at the same time that gives the the production weight and I think I actually take a lot of influence still from like that record you know in in an odd way because there was just like all these like howering like cellos like moving in and out and maybe it was just like a weird like like Juno synth like kind of just like pushing and pulsing like that you actually if you were like sitting in the and like listening to it on the radio in the car you wouldn't hear it but then when you were like listening closely you would notice that there was actually like a lot more weight to what was happening mm-hmm. you know yeah, yeah so yeah there's a lot of that yeah I definitely like transitioned out of the the grunge phase by the time I was probably like 14 or something mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah well, you know, uh, the, the name Kimbra is one that, that became familiar to a lot of people because of her uh, involvement in the Gautier song, Somebody That I mm-hmm. Used to Know. Um, but right. you had a huge song with her called Cameo Lover uh, on her debut album. Um, that's one that I hear, man, I hear all that pop influence. This is nonstop, baby.
I'll, I'll, I will admit, like that, I had very little to do. Like that was a song that I kind of just helped. I suggested a few ideas, and and so like I, I, and also I didn't produce that song. So it, it while yes, it's very pop. It's that that wasn't like I couldn't like feel comfortable saying like I had like a heavy hand in that song. You know, hmm. well, how how you know just biographically help us connect the dots from kind of being you know a guy in a band touring and doing your thing you know from an artist's place and, and then moving into you know even someone who would participate at any level within kind of a, a behind the scenes role as a writer how, how did you kind of make that move good, good question um basically i was playing in my band i was in as tall as lions from like 2001 to 2010 and towards the last couple of years of playing in the band like we had never seen like real like the success of like i'll, I'll define success by being able to not live with our parents. <laughs> that's, that's, that's my definition of success in the band. And I, we still like, we're kind of like living on Long Island and like not really being able to make ends meet and like trying to figure out how to like, you know, just gain a wider audience and like, and like having some creative differences. And basically because of our, our identities were so wrapped up in the band we had been playing in it, like as tall as lines was for nine years. But prior to that, two of the other guys in the band and I had been making music since we were like 14. Like we had, we had known each other since we were kids and like, we're very, very close and like we're a family. And I think our identities were wrapped up in it. And I, I kind of feel like looking back that like we, we had like kind of like by the last two years we were together, we're like very unhappy with the way that the, it was going and, but just didn't know how to like get it to end, you know, I, or it's like strong enough to like, you know, you're in a relationship with people that you love, but you, you're not strong enough to leave, you know? Hmm. Um, and I feel like I came out to LA in 2010 to meet up with a friend, Justin, who was like starting to work with Ariel Rexhide, who's an incredible uh, producer and songwriter. And they had been working on some music together. And I hung out with them and just kind of like had this one day where we just like were in the studio and we wrote a song. Like Justin invited me in very like kindly into a session. And we ended up writing a song and. And it was like such a positive experience and like the freedom of being able to write a song that wasn't for yourself and just being there and just like being able to create and not think about like, oh, like, am I saying what I want to say in this song? Is this song like ringing true to who I am as a person and like having that gravity to it mm. um, and just writing a song for fun was one of the most amazing experiences I ever had. And I like clicked in my head. I was like, oh, wait, like this is what I should be doing, you know? Mm. Yeah. And I basically like literally within like two weeks and Justin's a very convincing person. And he like because I was he could see that I was excited about it, like was like just kind of pushed me like, no, man, like, you should move out here. Like you should you would be a great songwriter. I was like, I would. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and <laughs> and he's like, it'd be great. Like you could move out here and you could do like do commercial, like, you know, do jingles. Like I when I first moved out to L.A., like I did jingles uh, to make money because because I didn't I couldn't make money from songwriting for the first couple of years. He's like, you can make money from doing jingles and they could do this and I could get you set up with the people that I know. And and yeah, like literally within like two weeks of being in L.A., I was like, I'm going to quit my band and I'm going to move to L.A. and I'm going to become a songwriter. And I like and I did. Wow. And, you know, it took like three years to kind of sort it out, really, because, I mean, it's just hard to get your foot in the door. And luckily, I was fortunate enough to like have some friends that like I was able to work in commercials and I got a job at a restaurant for a couple of years and just like kind of like, you know, like slugged it out until I can yeah. like make the connections and make it work. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, and and as you started working with Justin and Ariel, you guys uh, had some success getting songs, you know, placed with with artists like uh, Kylie Minogue, who did If Only uh, on her Kiss Me Once album, or um, Sky Ferreira, who um, you wrote a, a couple of singles, I Blame Myself and You're Not the One. And, and those were all things that you were involved with, with, you know, with, with those guys. So you're kind of coming into this world with your crew, you know, people you're working with that you that you trust, you know, that you have a, a a rapport with. But talk a little bit about, you know, the transition from writing as an artist who's going to be, you know, singing these songs yourself versus, you know, writing for trying to serve another artist's identity. Was there kind of an adjustment to that? I mean, I th- yeah, I think there was an adjustment. Uh, there was definitely an adjustment. And going back, like, I think, but in in a lot of ways it was positive because, like, you could just, like, kind of come up with a concept or just an idea and just run with it and not feel like, how does this pertain to me as a person, you know? Mm. Um, which, to me, always felt freeing because that was something that I always struggled with. It's like, you know, if I don't know, just something I always had insecurities about. But then also going back to what we were saying before about like me realizing what I was good at, you know, in terms of working with with Olivia or with Conan, that I that I kind of realized that back then, like Justin, like because I would write a lot of the seeds of songs that we were doing. And it was like Justin and I would like do a lot of work together. And I was realizing that Justin was kind of the one that would come up with the concept or the idea. And I would like I, I don't know how to explain it, but like my brain like works so well off of somebody else's like if somebody goes like, you know, like. I have an idea for a song called, you know, like candle and I go, Oh my God. Yes. And it could be that like, I need someone else to k- give me like the word or the, like the initial spark and then I'll run with it, you know? Mm, yeah. And so I feel like that's kind of, and I, especially when it comes to like Olivia and I actually just did a song with this artist Claude that just came out soft spot. I, there's a lot of stuff where they'll come in and they'll say a word to me and I'll go, Oh, okay. Like maybe the, like, and I'll, the, to me, it's like, I hear the song in like a mood you know? Mm-hmm. And like, I'm like, Oh, like, is it this mood? And I'll play like certain chords, like, or is it this mood? And we play different chords, you know? Yeah. And I start, and that's the thing that I feel like even with Justin, when I started in the beginning, like he would come in and be like with an idea for a song. And then I would like pick up the guitar or play a synth and be like, I think these are the chords that would go under it. And I think the melody should sound like this, you know, like, and, and so I'm never like, I'm not the one who's like super lyrically driven, you know? Yeah. But I, I love to shape everything else around it and figure out like what where the world, the song lies, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking, yeah, as much kind of success and comfort as you found with, with that group, you know, working together, um, I look at this Billy Idol song, Can't Break Me Down, in 2014, <laughs> yeah. and I look at the names there, I'm like, Billy Idol and Greg Kirsten. Greg Kirsten was already making a huge name for himself. I, I would imagine Billy Idol is not shy about his ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Shadows are growing. You're talking straight, but your colors are showing. Burn me, try to hurt me, try to get me when my head was turning. You are the rain of my survival story. You're crazy, baby, cause I never had a death. I'm singing songs about love and glory. Oh, 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 you're going. That was such a fun, that was such a fun, random thing that happened. Basically, I'm, I'm really close friends with one of uh, Greg's um, friends. And so when my, so when Greg was working with Billy, 
I think Greg had asked my friend Jesse, uh, like I'm doing a song. I got I have a couple of sessions with with him, and like who would be a good person to bring in to to write a song. And Jesse somehow suggested me, which is amazing. And I was like super flattered at the time. It was like such a crazy, you know, thing. And I, and yeah, that's literally how it happened. Uh, it was a friend of a friend who recommended me to help write the song. Wow. And I, and I met them both for the first time. No, actually, maybe I did meet uh, Greg maybe very briefly before, but it was, it was very intimidating for me, who is this like new and up and coming songwriter, yeah. to, like go to, go to like Greg's studio and like meet Billy Idol for the first time and Greg and be like, okay, like I'm like the, you know, <laughs> the, the, the under, not the under, uh, whatever. I was like, I'm like the new kid and I'm just yeah, like, I'm right. here to help. I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but I remember being so nervous and just like, so I was like shitting my pants. Like, like <laughs> I, I'm going to mess this up. I, and I remember like, I, I was like, I like, was like, okay, I'm going to prepare. And like talking before about how, like, I'm not like a super lyrical person. Hmm. Um, is that like, I remember like coming up with all these concepts. Cause I'm like, all right, I'm going to, I got to come in with concepts. I got to come in with ideas. And I remember like coming into the session and like having a couple of ideas and like, like Greg had like, you know, had made some music, like came up with like a little bit of like a, you know, a world of like where the music should, should lie for us to write a song. Hmm. And, uh, and I, I kind of like suggested my song ideas and like, w- like they were all like shot down and I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but in a way, kind of as the rookie, you did your job by bringing something in. You're, you know. <laughs> yes, I brought something in. I, like, I don't think any of them were good and rightfully so. They weren't actually good ideas, but like <laughs> luckily, luckily, like, you know, and that's what makes uh, like and something that I learned actually from Greg is like is that kind of thing where like it's okay to say like you don't have to be nice and say oh yeah let's try that you know you can just <laughs> right. like no i don't like and I, that happens to me all the time artists come in and they're like oh this is what i'm thinking i'm like ah you know i don't feel like that's the way that we should that that's a song that we should write you know <laughs> yeah and we actually just started like riffing on melodies and the song just kind of naturally came out but it was like you know it would i remember just like walking in with like these few little like seeds and like was kind of like eh, that's not that's not what we're gonna go with today. <laughs> right, right. somehow you guys ended up with a song that sounds as much like billy idol as i can imagine anything sounding you know it didn't sound yeah. like a, a a new take on billy idol it sounded like man you that that is billy it was i mean that was fun. it was a fun thing we wrote i feel like we wrote that song in like three hours and it was like it was just like a fun session and then you know like i think he billy came in the next day and cut the vote like we wrote the song we like thought about you know you you come back the next day and like we like listened to the melodies and like mapped it out and then we just like he just got on the microphone and was like damn like Billy's got it you know yeah 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 That's by the awesome. way this is what you get with two middle aged interviewers we're gonna spend like forty five minutes on the Billy Idol song <laughs> yeah <laughs> we don't care about Olivia Rodrigo so, we, care we about stop Billy talking Idol. about driver's license <laughs> yeah we know your other songs like super popular but let's talk about Billy Idol <laughs> um. Well, around 2015, we start seeing your name appear in credits, not just as a writer, but as a producer. I'm thinking about songs um, like Help Too by Little Boots, which you co-wrote and uh, produced, or um, even uh, When I Needed You by Carly Rae Jepsen, which you co-wrote and and also co-produced with Ariel. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'd love to hear about how you kind of made that transition into uh you know now you've you've been an artist now you've proven yourself as a writer how did you kind of get into the production side of things i think i think the way that i got into production is kind of similar to what i was saying about how um i i i'm more of like the 
the quote unquote person who like comes up with like all the musical things that happen in the song a lot of times. Um, I kind of feel like with, with what I started to realize as I was writing songs is that um, in the, so I guess I should explain it like in the in the in the pop world of songwriting, I feel like there's writers and there's producers and there's like kind of like a blurred line in between some some producers who like are writers, some producers who like are considered writers, but really they're just producers and they get the credit and some that don't. And, you know, there's there's different like there's different ethics or like etiquette that other that other everyone subscribes to, you know. Yeah. In the pop world, you know, how how like modern pop has evolved into what is what it's involved into into these days. And what I started to realize for myself was like with my songwriting is that like the producer in a lot of ways holds the key to the song like accidentally hmm. because it's like the producer you go in as a songwriter with a producer and it's then the producer's job to kind of make the production and then send it to the label or send it to the artist. And so it's it's all in kind of the producer's hands. Mm. And I realized I started to get like, well, well, with Ariel, he's an incredible producer. And when I would write songs for Ariel, like they would always come out great. I wasn't having that same experience with other producers when I would go in to write a song and I would like we would write what I would thought was a great song. And then I would get I would hear the demo like a week or two later and I'd be like, oh, my God, like what did this person do to this song, you know? And yeah. just because I'm so particular about like, oh, the chords and the, and the vibe of what's happening around it. And as a songwriter, you don't really have any control. A lot of times, like especially the artist has control. If the artist is like, oh, I don't like that, the, the producer is going to change it. But if you're just a songwriter like, and you were like, hey, I think you should do this to the production. I think you should do this. <laughs> a lot of times they're going to be like, who, who the hell are you? Like, shut leave up. me alone. <laughs> you know, shut up. Right. <laughs> and I just started to realize that like. And also because Ariel had started to get really busy, so he was he was available less and less to kind of like where our working relationship was getting like it was harder to ma- maintain it just because of how much work he was just doing with like say Heim or Vampire Weekend and other people, and he was obviously like doing so great that it was it was hard for us to to make stuff happen often. Yeah, I just kind of started to get into it, and I I always feel like I had to take a, basically took a step back because at some point I made the decision that like I'm like no. I need to start producing the songs that I write because I don't feel comfortable having other people uh, produce them for me anymore, you know? Yeah. Um, And it it was a big step back because ultimately I really wasn't that good at it. And I had to, it was, and also like you're, you're thinking about it. Like I'm at this point, I'm like 33 years old and I'm just deciding to like start to get into production, you know? But I felt like it was a really important moment for me because it was like, I was willing. And luckily I was also very lucky to have, done some commercial work so like you know it wasn't like i i had other ways of making money for a little bit um but i basically had to you know like take a massive step back and just started producing songs from that i was writing and for other artists and like they, i had like definitely some like mishaps along the way where like i would produce a song for an artist and then like the label was just like you know it's just not cutting it the production's not good enough but I, but that kind of stuff i think helped me get better because i had to keep on learning to like that i was hitting these roadblocks and like ultimately i wasn't good enough yet um yeah. to do it um but you learn and you get better every time you try you get better and i feel like that was a big that was like yeah around 2015 16 was when i decided to stop like going into sessions as a songwriter and then start doing the sessions myself. You know, yeah. a lot of people at the time thought I was, I was crazy. Cause like, what are you doing? Like, you know, like you're, 
you're great at writing songs. Like, just keep on doing what you're doing, and like, it'll start to like really pay off. And I was like, I don't know, I don't, I don't feel comfortable like having a song after song ruined. You know, like, <laughs> like I know it's harsh to say, but it, no. it would happen. You'd write a great like. I always think about all the great songs like that, like that are written, you know, by artists or by songwriters. That there's the wrong production on it, and the A and R never like saw through the production. You know, yeah. that I think about that. all. I tell people all the time because because it's something that I feel like I'm getting better at. My ears are getting more in tune to. I constantly am telling people, like, send me like send me an old idea. Send me like, like mm. send me like your favorite idea from five years ago that like for some reason people just didn't connect to. But like you go back to all the time, you know, yeah. like I always feel like there's like there's like there's like missing magic out there that like people that is like unrealized, you know. When it's almost kind of like a, a tired, beat up old like kind of songwriter complaint trope these days, like oh A and R guys don't have ears anymore. Um, you know, you you have to just give them this fully produced master and call it a demo. But I I think there's a little bit of something to that though as well. Like w- when when a song is kind of presented in a a more stripped down fashion, and then a producer is able to do his work rather than just like things getting dismissed out of hand because of the way it came out of the studio on the first day. Yeah, I mean, I, I learned, you know, I learned early on that I started. I was actually do. I did myself a disservice by trying to produce out like a half, half baked demo, and that like it's something that Greg Kirsten taught me. Actually, I remember I, I asked. I actually asked him his advice back then. And he was like, he said, always hand in a song finished. Like you, when you hand in the song, make sure that, like the version that you're sending to the label or to the artist is is good enough that you feel comfortable if it gets released into the world because there's a good chance that that's the version that everyone's going to hear, you know? <laughs> right. And that was really important advice. However, I like, I, I feel like I kind of like tweaked his idea where it's like either I, if while I'm working on a song for an artist, I either feel like I send a fully produced version that I feel comfortable for people here, like the world listening to, or I, after I get a little further along and if I realize that I don't like the production and the, and people are bugging me to hear the song, I'll strip it down to a piano and a vocal and be like, here's the song. Mm. And I think that either or can win in the yeah. in terms of like getting the artist or the label excited. I feel like a lot of times I hand in just a piano vocal and everyone like freaks out, you know? Hmm. Wow. Right. So it's, but it's, it's a weird, like, and I, I always, cause a lot of producers have asked me that question. And I feel like I'm always like, I was like, you just, I was like, like, how do you know? And I'm like, I don't know. You just, you get a feeling. You're like, this, well, I was like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to erase all the production and send the demo, you know, like the vocal. <laughs> hmm. You know, in, in recent years, and we've seen your production credits on songs like, you know, Mercy uh, from Lewis Capaldi. Yeah, you're both producer and writer on that. And then uh, Heaven by Phineas. Tell me, tell me, tell me, don't stop. You know, it's interesting when we look at these songs again. There's, there's something I think. You know, the choices you make as a producer are not always just to layer on more and more and more, but to pick the right sounds. And we talked a right. bit about that. Um, and I feel like, you know, it, it, in the old days, the olden days, it would be all about mic placement. 
You know, you're like, mm-hmm. well, that snare sound is really dependent upon the seven or eight hours we spent on one day just trying to get the right snare sound. And now you don't necessarily have to do that. But there is like this selection process that goes through. Now you've got a library of 10 gazillion samples. Um, and I'm curious about like you as a producer, um, how much patience do you have for that part of the process? Um, it, are, are the choices things that jump out at you or do you like to labor, labor, labor through finding just the exact right things? I think it, it depends on the song. I, I really think that that's it's great. It's a great question. And I think that it actually depends all the time on the song. Like there's tons of times where I actually do like, you know, speaking about driver's license, like I spent four days, like not the whole days, but like every morning for about four mornings, I woke up and I had the mics placed. In, I have a I have a U3 Yamaha upright piano in my in my studio and i have usually usually have the 414s mic'd on them close mic hmm. and i tried doing like a version of the piano we first i did it in midi because we were writing and we kept on changing the tempo and like once we had like a good vocal i like listened and i was like oh the midi's not cutting it so i like i was like i should definitely just play this on real piano and i, pl- I tried a couple of different mic placements and I ended up doing like a like a double stereo recording where I did two mics close and then two like two far mics. So it was like four mics on the piano. And then I got up every morning for four mornings and then like would just like play along to the vocal like when a click track and just try to get the feel of the piano to the vocal feeling really good. And every morning it was just like it didn't feel right. And by the fourth morning it was like it was so subtle and it was all about the feeling and the way that the piano sat that it was like. I do sometimes those things are really important it's like the feeling of it is just like you just know one day you get it you know like and it, yeah. it's like I, I don't know how to explain it it's just like you listen and it feels right and and it was that time it felt right on the fourth day and then like I was like okay cool here's the piano for the song you know and I think the mm. piano the mic placements are actually important on that one and also like that it is like about the tones like exactly how the piano sounds and you know like those things to me are still very important especially like I feel like because especially in new, really modern music, the last couple of years, it's like things are very open spaciously Mm. and like the sound selection is just so important. It's like if you're only going to have like one clap or one kick drum, like it has to sound so good. Like, and that's also subjective. So sometimes you do, you have to sit there and like try out 10, 30 kick drums. You're like testing out stuff. And for me too, it's like, you have to listen to it in the context of the song. So the kick drum isn't coming in until the second verse. So you're like, you're sitting there and you're like, I can't just like try a kick drum. And be like, that sounds good. It's like, no, I have to listen to it in context. So I have to put the kick drum in and then I have to start the song from the beginning and see how it feels when it hits in, you know? Yeah. And it's like, those things are like really tedious. Cause it's not just like putting in a sound and seeing if it works. Cause, and that happens all the time where you like, you try a sound and you're like in the middle of just like looping the chorus and you're like, wow, like that sounds amazing. I love it. And then you like, you spent two hours dialing in that sound and then you go back to the beginning of the song and listen to the song it hits the chorus and you're like, whoa, I hate it. Why? Like, you know, like it just, you're like so shocked at like how bad it was, but for some reason you liked yeah. it while you were like, while you were looping it, you know? And yeah. like, so yeah, so it's, I, I don't know if I'm answering your question. <laughs> oh, you know, you're totally answering it. And it, and it, it sort of, it, it, I actually really love it because I'm, I'm a big fan of, um, of sort of like the story behind the story. I, I love hearing that thing about the, I think that's why we do this podcast actually, but <laughs> you know, about the four days with the mics, because I, there's a, another podcast I'll listen to, I'll give them some free promo, but it's called producing the Beatles. And, you know, there was this long story about George Martin, how he brought in a newspaper every day to the studio. 
And then one day they were looking for a way to trick out the piano sound. He's like, well, let's just put this newspaper over the piano strings. And there's something so magical about that and so seemingly haphazard. Um, And as you were as you were talking, telling all that, I was thinking about, you know, what's more difficult, capturing lightning in a bottle or making lightning? Um, (laughs) Because in a way you're spending all this time to make lightning. (laughs) <laughs> yes it's, it's it's a weird i mean but then other times you just get like there's times where you put a demo together like you don't think about it at all like i know there's a song that olivia and i are working on right now that when i even say working on it, it's like we have the demo and i think everyone just likes the demo it's like and i didn't think about the mic placement i just put up a, i like literally like threw the mic up to try to just you know like get this like just to record a acoustic guitar so we could record a like write the song over a loop you know yeah. And then, yeah. like, you listen back, you're like, well, it sounds cool and it sounds weird, you know? And you're like, I like it. Like, I don't like, and I tried to, like, record, like, the guitar really nice on, like, I did a stereo recording and then I listened back and I was like, no, it doesn't have any life anymore. Like, that, for mm. some reason, me accidentally just throwing up the microphone and, like, haphazardly trying to play the riff, like, you know, for five minutes, like, that's it, you know? Huh. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I want to ask you about the uh, song Castles by Freya Writings, which was a, a top 20 hit around the world. Millions of views on, on YouTube. Um, that's a song where, you know, as as is often the case, you know, it's kind of a, a, a team of people working on that song. You know, it, there was a time that was kind of like one writer wrote a song, then maybe a couple writers or a writer with an artist. And increasingly, we're seeing more and more, you know, groups of people collaborating on songs. I'd love to hear about how that one came about. Now, it wasn't so much of a team. I mean, there's that song is a really that song. If there's any song in my discography that like is a, you know, like a I don't even know what I would call it. It That song took two years to get right. Wow. Um, it's one of my favorite songs that I've ever written. Um, and it was the most painful song to get done I've ever done in my life. Um, wow. And I love it. I still listen to it. I still I could listen to it and love it. But the process of it was just so tedious and um and and in a, in a way that actually I feel like in a great way I, I say this in a way that like I feel like it shaped me even more as a producer because it was so hard and I had to fight so hard to for me to be the producer on it um so that while there are actually four producers on it like um I think I think that's what you're referring to is the fact that there's four producers on it right, right really yeah. it was just me and Eve uh, my friend Eve we, we produced a song and at the very end apparently like I, I didn't actually even know this happened but like like something happened where they like they thought the pre-chorus was like didn't sound right or something so they like somebody came in it was I mean I still laugh at it because I'm just like while I, I love the other I actually never met uh, Dan but I know Mark and he's a great he's a friend of mine but like mm-hmm. they just added some snaps and an extra kick drum, um, so there's the, so I'll, I'll, I'm gonna go on record saying that even I produced the song and it was a really crazy <laughs> experience in which um, basically I had written the song with Freya, sent in an, an early early demo of the song and um, basically what happened? Oh, it was the demo was bad. It didn't sound very good. But the but the song actually wasn't even called Castles. It was called something else. We had a different chorus. The verse and the pre-chorus was exactly the same. The A and R rep, which I I love him. Alex is I consider him a, a dear friend of mine now. He emails me and goes, "Pre-chorus is amazing. Chorus is shit. You know, write a better <laughs> chorus." And I was like, "Okay, I'll see. Like, I'll I'll like I'll I'll take your raise. You know, like." Um, 
And it was interesting because I remember being like sort of offended when he said it. But then like when I listened back, I was like, I guess we could write a better chorus. And look, it was it was weird because she lived in the UK. We had, we had like a day together. We wrote the song and she wasn't coming back for like two months. So like there was all this anticipation of like, oh, we got to like really write the chorus when she's back because the label likes the song, but they don't like the chorus, which is also like a random thing because most of the times they're like, oh, the chorus is good, but like, can you like rewrite the rest of the right. song? It's hard. It's ra- rare that a label's like, great song, chorus sucks. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so we ended up getting together. We wrote what is now Castles, the chorus. And I sent in that version of the song and the label was, and Alex was just like, no, nope, it's a B plus at best. And I was like, huh. and I was like, you're wrong. I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you now you're wrong. Um, and I think actually I was like, I think it's my production that's actually just not cutting it. Um, and cause I had done like this like weird shuffle beat under it. And like, I think the shuffle beat was throwing it off and it was very like indie sounding. And I didn't actually at the time cause she was so new and she hadn't really released any music yet. Like I didn't really understand like what the project was supposed to sound like. So I was just trying to do my own thing to it. And so mm. I actually called my friend Eve and I was like, Hey, like, I think that they want like a bigger production. And I was like, maybe you can help me like make these drums sound different. And cause I had, a, I felt like I was really close to the song. Um, yeah. and I was like, I need, I need another ears on it and another perspective. And so I gave Eve the song and he kind of did, a th- he did his own thing to it. And he like really like opened up the song and kind of made it much more like not four on the floor, but it just has like that real pulse where it's like really moving and it has like an intensity to it that it didn't have before. Um, and then I took, and then we like got together and like, we worked on it and changed the sounds to be more like, I think he made it a little too like electronic sounding. So then we took it back to my studio, like, replayed like some instruments to make it feel like a little bit more organic and grounded. Um, and we sent it off. And I think the original thing was like, they did, still didn't really like the A and R liked it, but then like, you know, with everything that goes on in politics, like nobody, like my, I didn't really have a name and I think they really wanted to get somebody else to produce it. Um, mm-hmm. so like it laid, like it was like kind of dead for like a good six months to a year. And then like, I was told like I had like one more shot, you know, and like I basically like even I got back together for like three more days and like we like redid a whole bunch of it, like went and recorded live drums. We like we like went in really hard on the song. And and then that was a version that ended up coming out. It was over the course of two years of like back and forth and like probably like 10 different versions of the song. And there was like at least twice or three times where I thought like I wasn't that like they were going to let somebody else produce it. It was like a real, real tough, uh, you know, sell for for them. Yeah. You know, like I feel like there's always a thing with labels where like if you're an up and coming producer and you have an artist that like has a lot of like, you know, a lot of stuff going on for them and like it's a really big priority and like they don't a lot of times they don't feel comfortable like having like the unknown producer, you know, produce the song, when, especially when it's a priority song, you know? Um, that's not going to be a problem for you anymore. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
you know, in, in the last couple of years, we've seen songs like Castles or um, Caroline Polachek's So Hot You're Hurting My Feelings, um, the Conan Gray stuff, you know, blew up. And, and we've really seen this, um, you know, kind of recent success really happening for you after, you know, obviously building and building and building for, for years as you've kind of put this career together. Um, I, I, the one thing that I would just love to ask you coming back to driver's license. I mean, if there is a, a Saturday night live sketch about a song you wrote, you have made a cultural impact. <laughs> and I was watching Saturday night live a couple weeks ago and they had a whole sketch about the song driver's license and these guys reacting to it, which I thought was, was pretty funny. But I, what is it like just to process being a part of something that is, not I mean, it's not just a hit song, but it's it's like this cultural moment. How do you kind of process that now, knowing that like okay, everybody in the world practically knows a song that you wrote? I I mean like yeah, just literally yesterday, my wife and I were like we went out for a cup of coffee and we're like walking back to the house and and my neighbor across the street has two daughters like probably in there like they're probably ten and twelve or something. And they were like blasting the song in the house, you know, like the song was, just, and I never hear my neighbors blasting anything. And like right. the song was just like blast. Like actually the first thing I heard was just the, the, ooh. like I was like, wait. And like, I looked at Emily, my wife and I was like, oh, and I was like, and I was like, should we tell them? And she was like, no. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was like, but I, I mean, I don't, it's, it's the most surreal thing ever. I don't, I don't know how to answer the question other than like, it's, it's, I never thought in a, in a million years, like this is like, this would happen. Like I, I, I would, I always hoped that when I moved out to, moved out to LA and started to get into songwriting that like you could make something that felt that special to so many people, but like you actually like if it never happened, I would have also been, you know, content with the way my career was going. This just feels like the most amazing thing that it just feels it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. I, I have like I am like honestly like lost for words with with how it's how it's happened because it also feels really special c considering it's with an artist that I like. I really like I love her so much. She's just so incredible and we have a good relationship and like it's not like some random artist that I met one time and we wrote a song and like it happened to do well and like you never talk to that artist again you know right so yeah. it, it feels extra special knowing that it was like it stemmed from like a like a place of like uh, an artist and I like really digging deep in a way that like I would hope that w when I started my career in songwriting that that it would go um yeah so that feels like kind of like weird and surreal that like that like that sort of like fantasy dream of like how you want your career to happen like happened <laughs> you know because right. like, yeah right. you, i mean like the, you, i hear from friends all the time like you know oh like yeah i have this hit song but like it's this random thing that i walked in and like i did this thing and then like i didn't have any attachment to it and then the song blew up and then people want me to go in and write more of that song and i'm like i don't really write songs like that it was an that was an accident <laughs> you know yeah right right yeah so it feels good to be able to do something and, and feel like it actually was like it was per it wasn't it wasn't purposeful in any way that we were trying to make a hit song, but it was purposeful and like we were trying to make that song, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're being recognized for doing what you do, which is, which is nice. Yeah. Um, 
Well, Dan, thank you so much for spending time with us today. It's, uh, you know, congratulations on the success of this song. It's it's hugely inspiring and it's cool just to hear a little bit about your uh, path uh, up to this point and, and your artistry and your writing. You're clearly uh, a passionate guy and, and you're doing some really cool things musically. And I know our, our listeners are going to love uh, having had the chance to hear you tell your story. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting other potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. You can also sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and find out how to help support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can follow us on social media by searching for Songcraft Conversations on Instagram and Songcraft Show on Facebook and Twitter. And finally, be sure to check out our friends at the American Songwriter Podcast Network at americansongwriter.com. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.